Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. It is well understood that the United States is in a divisive period, and yet not all polarization is undesirable, and in some cases, referring to the animosity that exists between groups as polarization can distract from what's really at stake, such as in conflicts over civil and human rights. Having negative feelings about another group is entirely natural if, for instance, that group seeks to deny your right to vote or simply to exist. A high degree of animosity against fascists is a good thing. Nevertheless, efforts to reduce partisan animosity, support for undemocratic practices, and partisan violence may indeed help create the space and time for deeper fissures to be addressed. A little more than a year ago, a coalition of multidisciplinary researchers at Stanford MIT, Northwestern, the University of Pennsylvania, and Columbia set out to crowdsource ideas to address the political divide in what was dubbed the Strengthening Democracy Challenge. After reviewing more than 250 submissions from researchers, activists, and others, the research coalition selected 25 interventions it deemed most promising to test against one another in an experimental tournament using a sample of 31,000 U.S. adults. To learn more about the challenge, some of the promising projects that emerged from it, and whether tech platforms may play a role in efforts to address polarization using the types of interventions designed for the study, I spoke to two people at the Polarization and Social Change Lab at Stanford. Yeah, I'm Rob Willer. I'm a professor of sociology, psychology, and organizational behavior here at Stanford, and I'm also the director of the Polarization and Social Change Lab. My name is Jan Völker. I'm a PhD student in the Department of Sociology at Stanford University and also a member of the Polarization and Social Change Lab. So what does a Polarization and Social Change Lab do? Yeah, we work on a couple different central political dilemmas in the U.S. So one concerns conflict between the left and right, uh, which we see as impeding uh, efforts to solve social problems, especially via any kind of legislation. And then we also work on other kinds of political dilemmas, including divisions on the American left that may get in the way of affecting social change through social movements and policy advocacy. So a year ago, you set out to do this challenge, the Strengthening Democracy Challenge. Tell me a little bit about it and what you hope to do. Uh, So we were motivated by concerning public opinion data around levels of support for democratic principles. Uh, the concerningly high levels of support for anti-democratic practices that we saw in the general public, also concerned about ever-increasing partisan animosity uh, that's been expressed among American partisans uh, that's been increasing for about four or five decades now. Uh, We were also concerned about data that you'll see on support for partisan violence, which is not high, but uh, I would say any non-zero levels of that are, are concerning. So what we wanted to do was try to do the study that we could think of that could contribute the most practical knowledge for addressing these problems. And in you know contrast to the typical studies we run in the lab where we get an idea, we go and test it, and then we do a paper on it, we thought you know, what would be better would be to try to find all of the good ideas that we could find uh, for addressing these problems. And so we sent out a call on social media for anybody to submit ideas 
for interventions, uh, things that somebody could experience in an online survey that would improve their partisan animosity, their support for anti-democratic practices, their uh, support for partisan violence. And we were blown away by the response. We had over 250 submissions from more than 400 researchers in 17 countries, you know, way more enthusiasm than we expected. And then we whittled that down to 25 uh, interventions that we tested in a massive mega study that we conducted earlier this year. So I want to talk about some of the specific interventions, but before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about the overall methodology. So, you know, you use this term depolarization, depolarization as a term is not as studied. In this space, there are like, there there are a lot of researchers and also um, practitioner groups, like civil society organizations who are trying to reduce partisan animosity, which is like, one form of polarization oftentimes referred to as effective polarization, which you may contrast with other aspects such as attitudinal polarization, whereas like attitudinal polarization refers to attitudes oftentimes on, uh, on policies that are far away from each other. Effective polarization refers to increasing dislike that partisans have for the other side. And so there has been this, this research area building up that is trying to reduce partisan animosity. And that is what we mean when we refer to or when we're using the term depolarization. But you know, like you can also ex- extend this further and introduce other problematic attitudes that Rob has referred to, right? Like you, know, you could see like anti-democratic attitudes as an you know, like some people have talked of that as being a potential consequence of polarization. So like when we started out the project, we also like did a deep dive into what are actually the outcomes that are worth studying the most. And then we decided to have a tournament with multiple potential targets, including partisan animosity, but also support for undemocratic practices and support for violence. You've got some real uh, heavyweights in political science and uh, other disciplines that are on the advisory for this folks like Liliana Mason, I see Jamie Settle. Who else was advising this project? Um, so we really had experts from, um, from across the board. We have great scholars from, um, from sociology, like, for example, Chris Bale. We also have a, a lot of uh, practitioners who are serving uh, on the board. For example, Kristen Hansen from Civic Health Project, who has been really a great source of support for the project. We have uh, Esther Hagitai, uh, I hope that I'm, I'm pronouncing that name that name correctly. We have Matt Genska, who is uh, from uh, economics. So yeah, like we really try to represent leading scholars from across the social sciences to uh, to like reach out to all of these communities and get the best ideas in this space. So you ended up with 25 projects that you took forward and. Maybe you can explain a little bit about the general methodology, because each of the projects essentially had, I guess, a similar kind of architecture or or underlying uh, methodology in that they had access to this massive sample of, of survey participants that you recruited. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we took 25 of these ideas that were submitted by uh, by participants in this challenge and administered them in a massive survey experiment. And what that meant was that we took 32,000 participants, a nationally representative sample of American partisans, and they came up to the study and got randomly assigned to either be in one of these 
uh, to either experience one of these 25 interventions or to be assigned to uh, a control condition, which is sort of like a placebo condition. And what we were, the reason we use this design is so that we could compare the effects that all of these 25 interventions had relative to this control condition on the participants attitudes and and their views and and preferences. Uh, We also were able in this design to compare them to one another. And this is a unique advantage of this design is that this is better than 25 research teams running 25 independent studies. Uh, I don't know if that's what would have happened in the absence of this, but something like that might've happened over a period of years. But when you run them all together, you're able to compare them against one another because uh, they share the same sample. We use the same measures to see what the effects of the interventions were. Uh, So it's a huge advantage to to do a study in this way. And then on the back end, after people have experienced one of these interventions or the control condition, they then are administered a set of survey questions that assess things like partisan animosity, support for undemocratic practices, support for partisan violence, and a variety of other uh, outcome measures that are related to democracy and polarization in the U.S. And so in this way, we can assess uh, which of these interventions made a difference on these problematic, uh, concerning, potentially problematic attitudes, and and which ones didn't move the needle. So I want to go through and just maybe talk about a few of them. We won't be able to go through all 25, of course, but just to give the listener some sense of what some of the interventions look like. One that stood out to me, perhaps because uh, I've had Jay Van Babel from NYU on this show before, Common Identity Project from NYU and the University of Cambridge. What was this project setting out to do? Yeah, so um, with this uh, intervention, try to make the make the basic argument that um, Democrats and partisans share a common identity, and then included a, a variety of information in order to make this argument. So, like that, uh, that included um, providing information about like more more similarities between Democrats and Republicans than uh, than is typically assumed, both in terms of policy attitudes with regard to anti-democratic attitudes or, or violence, also in terms of what uh, what their leadership um, supports, having quotes from um, Democratic and, and Republican elites, and then making making the, the overarching argument that there is a, a shared interest and a shared sense of uh, of being American. So like this really like built on on various different research programs, like to try to design an, uh, an intervention that was as effective as possible, and, and it turned out to be quite successful. Can you speak to the results? How far was it possible to move people? Yeah, so like there, I would divide the results in sort of two groups. So, for example, the the common uh, identity um, uh, intervention reduced partisan animosity by about nine or ten points, which is on a scale from zero to uh, to one hundred, so like you know, if you like assume that commonly partisan animosity is like pretty high, it's, it might be like around like seventy or so. So then reducing partisan animosity by ten points is actually uh, quite a substantial decrease in a durability test. The decrease was quite sustainable even even two weeks later. So the so as strong anymore. But it was still clearly, clearly reliable and detectable. Um, on some of the other outcomes that we were interested in, the decrease was what we would call statistically significant, but it was smaller in size. So, uh, for example, support for undemocratic 
attitudes was reduced by like around like 1.8, I think, uh, on the same scale from like from zero to 100. But the baseline level for uh, support for uh, undemocratic practices is also lower than, for example, partisan animosity. I'm just kind of imagining that maybe that type of reduction might allow people to stay in the same room with one another for a little bit longer. Yeah, I think certainly the partisan animosity effects speak most directly to that, in part because partisan animosity, as it turns out, is highly correlated with preferences for social distance from rival partisans. So people who uh, you know, have more benign you know, attitudes towards rival partisans, less, less dislike and, and even hate, uh, tend also to be more inclined to uh, affiliate with, interact with, be willing to live near, and so on, uh, rival partisans. And, and we found that both in, in the measures and how correlated they are, and then also in terms of the treatments. Those, those, those interventions that successfully treated partisan animosity also tended to treat social distance preferences effectively as well. So let's look at another one uh, that I found interesting, the road not taken, reflection on counterfactual selves as a means to reduce animosity and violence. This one comes from Fordham and folks at the University of California at Irvine. Uh, What's this reflection on counterfactual selves? Uh, Counterfactual selves is a a fascinating intervention in that it encourages participants to reflect on how their attitudes might be different if they grew up in a different part of the country or just had had a different path through life. And uh, this is, to me, a very intuitive sort of intervention that if you can you know, reflect on the fact that if you were born under very, very different circumstances, statistically, the, the odds that you would have very different political attitudes are quite high, uh, assuming the different circumstances were living in a different region or living in a rural, growing up rural rather than urban or urban rather than rural or so on. So if you grew up uh, differently, one would intuitively think uh, as a sociologist and social scientist that you, you would have very different views. Interestingly, this intervention was did not have large effects, although I had expected it would. It had a, a small effect on partisan animosity, so views towards rival partisans, but uh, but really quite small. And uh, I think this is one of the values of this project is that it tells us not only which interventions work, which ones make a difference, which ones make a big difference, but also those interventions that that don't do as much as you might intuitively think, because this is one that I would have bet a lot of money on uh, ahead of time, and and I would have lost uh, some of that money, depending on how you arrange the the gamble. I assume, too, that it may just point to the limitations of the the method, that maybe there is empathy to be gathered from considering a counterfactual self, but maybe not in a survey. Yeah, I think that that's right. I think that... uh, all these interventions are susceptible to that concern that if they were implemented differently, they might have uh, a different effect. And, and we can't be sure that they wouldn't have a substantially different effect if they were executed, you know, optimally, for example. I mean, counterfactual self seems like something that, while this isn't a scalable way to implement it, would actually implement really well in a VR intervention, you know, like a virtual reality intervention where you can really, really imagine you're in a completely different cultural background, you're growing up in a different setting, that would make it much easier to visualize. People may find it quite hard to visualize that if they just haven't been in those circumstances. And I know there are scholars, I'm thinking of Courtney Cogburn and colleagues at Columbia who've actually done that, particularly with with race um, and VR and trying to kind of create that counterfactual self. Um, Another one, um, which I found interesting, a common economic plight and a common economic enemy from the University of British Columbia. This one sort of reminded me of the 
message of the poor people's campaign. I don't know if you're familiar with that, which uh, yeah. seems to try to draw people together across the political divide uh, by reminding people that there's a, an economic architecture in place, which they may kind of, you know, share as an adversary. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a huge fan of the poor people's campaign, which I think is, is phenomenal. And actually um, a lot of our research in the lab that uh, focuses on moral bases of political persuasion really, you know, really resonates with the poor people's campaign and, and how they approach things. Uh, you know, here, this was another intervention that I would have bet uh, a good amount of money on doing, doing very well in the challenge. Uh, the idea that you could create uh, cross-party class-based, social class-based solidarity is to me a really attractive method. And obviously in history, we see examples of it working uh, very well and even mobilizing, you know, revolutions, you know. And here in our study anyway, it was not a game changer. It didn't move the needle very much for the outcomes that we were studying. It didn't affect support for undemocratic practices or support for partisan violence. It did very, very slightly reduce partisan animosity, but really just like a, a, a tiny and barely significant effect. So, and this was actually well executed as well. I thought that this one was uh, a quite polished uh, implementation of its idea. And that's, you know, this is helpful knowledge to know that a well executed version of this idea, it might affect a lot of things. Uh, it might be effective for certain issue oriented advocacy. In fact, I bet that it would be but it wasn't particularly effective at reducing polarization-related attitudes. And it also speaks to your earlier question about, you know, if you would, like, try to do the same idea in different ways, right? Because, like, this is also, like, similar to the other common identity uh, intervention, right? Like, trying to build up um, similarities between Democrats and Republicans. And we see that, like, one of those common identity interventions did did quite a bit better than, than this... Uh, economic interest-based uh, based intervention. So like that also um, speaks to, you know, like that, like, even if you follow similar abstract ideas, the, the effects can be quite different. There's also a long line of research in sociology and political science on how the U.S. features, you know, unusually low levels of class consciousness. And this challenge, like relative to Western Europe, Northern European countries, especially, or Latin American countries. And, you know, this intervention is trying to harness that, you know, to create cross uh, cross party solidarity, and it may be going up against one of the the big cultural public opinion findings about America, which is that there's not as much class consciousness as you'd expect, especially given levels of inequality. I want to bring up one that I struggled with a little bit. So uh, this one was called "Correcting Overestimates of Opposing Partisans' Willingness to Break Democratic Norms." This one came from a team at the University of California at Berkeley. Uh, different parts of MIT and Toronto's uh, Metropolitan University. Um, and the abstract says, quote, participants are told that most people do not know much about the other party. They are then asked to guess what people from the other party believe when it comes to actions that undermine how democracy works. For example, using violence to block laws, reducing the number of polling stations to help the other party, or not accepting the results of elections if they lose. So, of course, this is a a timely uh, intervention to test in the United States. And so basically the participants got eight questions. Uh, you chose whether you were taking the quiz from the Republican or the Democrat kind of point of view. And I suppose based on this survey of 30 odd thousand people, essentially, you know, uh, uh, the intervention hopes to kind of show that for the most part, 
the alternate party may not embrace the kinds of anti-democratic uh, behaviors that, that you might think. So why did I struggle with this one? So the idea seems to suggest that like the average Republican less interested in pursuing anti-democratic means to secure a victory. But of course, the context we're in, of course, makes it kind of difficult to, yeah. to swallow that one. I wonder, you know, given where we're at, the durability of the big lie, what we're seeing in terms of secretaries of state and other candidates in charge of elections that are embracing a false election claims, that sort of thing. How does that one square? What am I missing about this one? Yeah. So I, mean, I think you put your finger on something that's really, really tricky in this space, which is uh, what's the role of partisan interests vis-a-vis democratic principles? And then what's the role of misinformation in, in the democratic problems that we're facing in the U.S.? So to recap this intervention, what it did was it gave corrective information to Democrats and Republicans about the levels of reported support for undemocratic practices in public opinion polling of their political rivals. So Democrats find out the actual levels of support for undemocratic practices that Republicans report in national representative surveys, and Republicans get the same about Democrats. And while support for undemocratic practices like these is, I think, concerningly high, uh, it is nonetheless lower than partisans think their rivals you know, report. And so when you give people this corrective information, they then ratchet down their own support for undemocratic practices, because I think to a great extent, people are supporting undemocratic practices because they think the other side uh, is doing it at very high levels. We see a similar pattern with support for partisan violence. We have a paper out of our lab earlier this year showing that uh, people overestimate how much their rival partisans report high levels of support for partisan violence. They overestimate three, 400 percent, like just massive overestimates. The levels of support for partisan violence are concerningly high, like 10 on a 100 point scale. We'd like to see that at zero, uh, but they're not 40, you know, which is what people perceive them to be. You give people that corrective information and they ratchet down their own support for partisan violence. And that treatment tends to persist over time. So This is pointing to the fact that we have very exaggerated partisan stereotypes that likely come from our animosity towards rival partisans, but also our segmented media environments and, and, you know, social media environments. So how do you square this with the fact that we see majorities of self-identified Republicans endorsing what, what we would call the big lie? And then we see, I think right now, a very small minority of major Republican nominees in the 2022 midterm election who endorse the results of the 2020 election, according to one 538 study, it's under 20%. Uh, So at the elite level, we see a great deal of anti-democratic activity um, in the Republican party right now. That wasn't the focus of these interventions. They They were correcting people's views of public opinion amongst rank and file Democrats and Republicans voters, you know, your question would be, but don't we see majorities of Republicans denying the results of the 2020 election? And we do that. That is that is the case in public opinion data. However, if you asked those folks, is it okay to deny the results of elections that your party has lost? Most of them would probably say no. They would just say that isn't what 2020 was. That according to what I'm hearing, 2020 was a rigged election. I'm hearing that from the sources that I trust in the media and the political leaders I trust. So this doesn't 
So I would not support that at a, as high of levels as Democrats, you know, think that I would. But I, I don't think that that's the situation we're in. You know, I support democratic principles. That's why I'm so worried about, about this stolen election. So just to kind of put a bow on this excessively long answer, I apologize. But it's a very nuanced thing is there, there's a whole suite of democratic problems we're dealing with that are much more, much better understood as misinformation problems. And I think especially strong Trump supporting Republicans are denying the results of the 2020 election because they're putting faith in Trump and, and Trump affiliated Republican leaders. And that our research, especially on the democracy variable, might apply better to moderate Republicans who maybe don't believe the big lie, but are still voting Republican and are tolerating anti-democratic actions uh, for the most part. And our research would speak to, for people who see this trade-off for what it is, that they're trading off you know, democratic principles for partisan, for, you know, for gains for their preferred party, how can you intervene with those folks? And, and change the calculus for them. So that, that's how I would think of it as, as two related but distinct problems. I want to come back to the, the question about the polarization frame. Um, but before I do that, I want to ask maybe the both of you briefly, is there another project that we haven't discussed so far that you admired? Yeah, I thought another really, really interesting intervention was uh, one we called Democratic Fear, which uh, the way that it intervened was it showed a video of scenes of civic unrest following democratic collapse in a number of countries, and then culminated by drawing a connection to the Capitol riot uh, that happened on January 6th of last year. And this intervention was effective at increasing Democrats and Republicans' support for democratic practices or or reducing their support for undemocratic practices. Uh, It also improved partisan animosity. I think I can, I would say is because it sort of helped Democrats and Republicans see what's at stake. You know, like we sort of take for granted democratic stability in a country that's had relative democratic stability for 160 years. Uh, However, that can go away surprisingly quickly. And when it does, it looks really, really bad. And what's more, we have some credible evidence from just a year and a half ago of what it would look like if it if it started to go away and it looks it looks really scary interestingly that intervention increased support for partisan violence amongst republicans and I, my read on that would be that they saw this and either there was sort of a normative influence effect of seeing a bunch of republicans you know taking you know being uh, violent uh, on January 6th, or possibly uh, some anger against the intervention, perhaps, because they didn't uh, equate the uh, January 6th Capitol riot with uh, these other scenes of democratic unrest. Uh, We don't know exactly why, but it's an important caveat for applying that intervention is you you wouldn't want to come out of it and say, ha ha, we just need to show people these scenes of what it looks like when democracy collapses, and that's going to help people attach some stakes to all this you probably would want to test some different implementations that might be more effective or effective among Republicans without creating the support for violence backfire effect. For me, uh, another uh, intervention that I thought was a was a very smart idea was a short video showing the two gubernatorial candidates in Utah for the 2020 uh, election that was submitted by uh, Ben Lyons, who's a, who's a professor at the University of Utah. And in that video, the two speak about their commitment to uh, accepting the results of the elections, uh, independent of which of the two candidates would win. So it was a great example of a very um, common uh, strategy of having uh, political elites endorse uh, endorse practices 
setting a norm that uh, that then voters could follow. And here um, we find consistent uh, effects for partisan animosity, for um, support for violence, and for uh, support for undemocratic practices, which were all reduced by this uh, by this intervention. And I think the reason that, that like this is so interesting is because it applies a, a principle and shows how actual political candidates in the real world can really do this. You know, like they can they can really have an have an impact if they want to. And that influences voters who see these ads. So I think like this could be really inspiring for political candidates because the country, either if they want to do that themselves or if they can find an opponent in both like primaries or general elections to say, hey, you know, like together we we are going to accept the results of the election or we support these democratic principles and that can set the tone uh, for a fair fight for whoever is going to win the election. So I've got two questions left. Um, they're not small questions, but um, hopefully we'll get through them reasonably quickly. As you're, I'm sure, well aware, there's a broader debate in scholarly communities about polarization uh, as a concept, as whether it's a useful frame in the political context we're in in the United States. So, you know, you've got some referring to the animosity that exists between groups, you know, whether polarization can distract us from what's really at stake, um, you know, whether it applies in conflicts over civil and human rights, uh, where one group may be denying the rights or even the existence of another. Do any of the submitters grapple with these questions? And do you feel like the challenge grappled with these questions? Yeah, I think it's an excellent question. I mean, I think that you're right that for certain political problems we're facing, we might think of them as not being equivalent across Democrats and Republicans. I certainly think that way. And our data set you know, allows us some purchase on that. So you can look specifically among Republicans at levels of belief in the 2020 election, for example. So you could analyze how these interventions uh, affected that specifically, or you could look specifically at uh, Republican support for some specific democratic reforms, such as automatic voter registration, and and see well which of these interventions helped to to increase support amongst Republicans or just Democrats and Republicans in general on you know making it easier for people to achieve democratic access. So some of these questions that come up, I think our data set actually offers us a lot of purchase on, and and can be really helpful for. So that'd be one thought I have. I think another thought is that when you look at data like the data we collected it tells you a lot about the the nature of the democratic problems we're facing in the US. I'll just focus on that uh, aspect of political problems. So the levels of support for anti-democratic practices, undemocratic candidates, partisan violence, they the ones that we observed were a little bit higher amongst Republicans, but I would think of this as more of a difference of degree than kind because uh, they're really only a little bit higher. For the most part, the levels are, are really, really similar. So you might say, well, what's, you know, why do we see Republican extremists doing the Capitol riot? And why do we see Republicans denying elections, misinformation aside? Or why do we see Republicans who don't uh, deny the results of the 2020 election still uh, presumably voting in large numbers for Republican candidates who do in the 2020 midterms? Like, why do we see that? And this research can help to speak to that. But one of the findings that you would get is that the levels of support in the general public are really for those kinds of things are really similar amongst Republicans and Democrats, but it's Republican leaders that are uh, moving to to capitalize on on those opportunities, and Democratic leaders, thankfully, are not. 
I think that one thing scholars of democracy across, you know, cultures and time periods highlight is that when you have high polarization, you see a real risk for democratic backsliding because partisans stop serving as an effective check against undemocratic moves and, and because they perceive too big of a trade-off uh, by, you know, from switching to vote for a rival party or for or from staying home. And our results are, are very consistent with that. So Democrats and Republicans are both in this highly polarized environment. You ask them, what if you're your in-party candidate did this? What if they did that? And for the most part, they say, you know what? I would still vote for them because the other party is uh, just a non-option for me. And that's true amongst Democrats and Republicans. And right now, Republicans are clearly seizing on that more. And so to, to add to that, you know, like you know, I think that our study is um, unique in the sense that it can really speaks to um, the problem of like, you know, which problematic attitudes in the U.S. track with, effective polarization you know so so like that has been quite a quite a debate in the literature for some time you know like when we when we studied effect or at least when i studied effective polarization a couple of years ago i had a lot of assumptions about what would be the, the consequences for like for democracies with with high levels of of effective polarization and in our study we we tried to actually measure you know like if you move partisan animosity with your intervention which of these other potentially problematic attitudes are you also moving? And we and we find that if you can reduce partisan animosity to a strong extent, then, as Robert said, that trickles down to reduce support for undemocratic candidates. Like that is that is a really important finding, I think. However, we also find that interventions that substantially reduce partisan animosity do not really reduce support for undemocratic practices or support for violence reliably, suggesting that between partisan animosity and those outcomes, there might be not so much of a, of a causal relationship. I think when we, when we have these debates, it is really important to actually get empirical evidence on the question to what extent these, these different constructs are, are actually related to each other. And, you know, like one main takeaway of the challenge is if you want to reduce anti-democratic attitudes, design an intervention that really focuses on reducing uh, anti-democratic attitudes instead of like try to reduce polarization and then assume that that that's going to trickle down to anti-democratic attitudes. How did you deal with this sort of possibility of this false equivalence? Well, one thing that we thought about when we were thinking about how to design the challenge was we thought about this uh, question of would we be creating a sense of false equivalence? And one thought we had was that uh, if it's the case that democratic support for undemocratic practices and partisan violence are much, much lower you know, uh, than Republicans, then submitters would do better in the challenge by focusing on Republicans. You know, like if if there's a false equivalence that a lot of people are falling for that is that is truly false, totally false in the sense of there aren't problematic democratic motivations and and, and problematic levels of support for partisan violence that also are found amongst uh, some Democrats, then a submitter that took that into account and just focused on Republicans would be, you know, would have a competitive advantage. And so we thought, you know, like, let's not put our thumbs on the scale here. Let's let this play out and uh, and see if submitters will capitalize on some natural imbalance. And as it turned out, there wasn't a big imbalance. Republicans were higher on these things, that they weren't dramatically higher. And interventions tended to 
target both sides uh, pretty equivalently, like they didn't make the bargain to just try to do really, really well with Republicans. I can't be sure that that was the best strategy. It's possible that targeting Republicans, you know, specifically would have would have been better. But anyway, you know, we set up a competitive environment wherein not falling for a false equivalence that wasn't indeed false, you know, would have been incentivized, if that makes sense. Uh, and, and we got the results that we did. Underlying so many of these animosities, um, as Liliana Mason and others have, you know, rightly pointed out, uh, is the issue of race. Do you think that any of these interventions took that squarely on? I don't think that we have seen as many interventions taking that that route as we had hoped that we would get. You know, like uh, it was like another potential route would be like more like gender focused interventions as well. So I definitely think that there was still a lot of room for um, for testing interventions that were like very much focused on that. There's been great work for, for example, by like Sean, uh, Sean Westwood about the relationship between partisan animosity and uh, and racial animosity. So it is like certainly, certainly possible that there was a lot of promise for interventions that would focus on that. I'll just add to that that a couple of the interventions did feature warm relations between uh, between individuals of different racial or ethnic backgrounds. And given how connected that is to party identification, that's possible that that contributed. You know, seeing you know seeing positive relations across racial and ethnic groups may cue improved partisan relations as well. And that may be something that the mega study framework could be applied to uh, in future. Yeah, I mean, I would love to see, you know, a mega study designed to reduce racial resentment uh, amongst Americans. And there's a there's been a project sort of like that that was run by Calvin Lai, uh, who tried to uh, solicit interventions that would reduce implicit biases and has also, I think, taken this mega study framework to the to the space of workplace discrimination. But I think that work is still in progress. So so there's folks that are thinking, how can we use this methodology uh, to work on uh, race-related problems in the U.S.? For my last question, on to, I guess, another topic that is, you know, often muddied and uh, difficult to discern in the literature. Um, You know, of course, this is the Tech Policy Press podcast. We talk about technology, social media. We've talked about the role of social media in driving division and animosity, polarization. We've talked about uh, whether social media could be used to depolarize. Do you think any of these interventions could be scaled or uh, the insights could be adopted in some way by technology firms to counter some of the ill effects of partisan animosity that you've detailed here? Can you imagine that happening? Yeah, I think the results are applicable to social media platform design, and we really hope that they that they are, and we're we're eager to to support that. I think that there's two, generally speaking, two ways you can take these results to application. So one is uh, operating on general principles that we've identified as more or less efficacious, more or less effective ways to move uh, these problematic attitudes in the general public. So we come out of this research with a, a real clarified sense of like, what are the levers that you would want to press if you wanted to m- improve people's democratic attitudes? And, and that includes, you know, uh, reducing their exaggerated out-party stereotypes. That includes building a sense of common identity. That includes, um, you know, giving them a sense of what's at stake and if there is some sort of democratic collapse in the future, that we're not just, uh, this isn't a low stakes game. And these are some of the levers that that you would want to know if you were doing 
platform design. And you would also want to know that some other ones don't, don't do so much, you know, like the counterfactual selves, for example. Uh, so clarifying what does and doesn't matter uh, for affecting these outcomes, I think is, is really helpful. And I know that the colleagues of mine that work in platform design, they think all the time about like, well, what are the things on these platforms that make these problems worse? And what are the ways you can make them better? Uh, they intervene in a wide, you know, variety of ways to to try to improve these uh, these you know these problems, and they it's very helpful for them to have an improved toolkit. I think a second way you can use this knowledge that we've that we built here to intervene is more specifically. So, uh, Jan talked, I think quite well about the Utah Hughes intervention that we tested, which showed people a, a bipartisan endorsement of the 2020 uh, election that came from the two Utah gubernatorial candidates. Uh, that intervention could be just copied for other in other electoral contexts. And, you know, Facebook uh, or Meta, whatever we're calling it, they do stuff to support democracy and voter turnout. They, you know, sometimes commission their own content to be created for those ends. They did for vaccine outreach as well. Uh, they could do something like that that's bipartisan. It's not putting your thumb on one side of the scale and it's improving uh, American sense of democratic integrity. They could they could recruit George W. Bush and Barack Obama to film uh, an endorsement of the 2022 midterm elections and, and that their integrity should be trusted, for example. And uh, I, I would say regardless of whether they produce the content, they could promote it. If uh, some other group created content like that, uh, Facebook could help promote it with free ad credits or what have you. Uh, so there's a lot of opportunities for media platforms, social media platforms to make a difference in this space. Will there be a strengthening democracy challenge too? Oh, that's such a good question, Justin. Um, oh God. Yeah, right. <laughs> Jan, Jan did so much work on this, what I did too. It's exhausting to consider. I mean, a couple of possibilities that have come to mind would be replicating some of the most effective interventions in another geopolitical context. For example, you know, a, a setting of either high levels of political animosity between partisan groups or or a setting with some other kind of uh, political strife. Uh, so that would be one thing we could do or just use this structure of a research study on a new question, like how to make Americans care more about economic inequality, for example, or take action on the levels of concern that they already have. You know, there's a lot of ways that uh, you could take a design like this and try to wrestle with new questions. And we'd be excited to do that next. It's already been been great to see other people using the using the mega study um, framework and trying to like push that in different directions. So, so that we can also learn from them, like, a lot of uh, respect for Katie Milkman, who has done this very, very successfully uh, over the last few years. Uh, already, we have seen now a known NYU project on like moving climate change. We have seen that in the Many Labs project across many different disciplines. But now, also, you know, like, I think like our lab is going to um, work on this. But we'll also be be learning from all of these other scholars uh, we're now coming up with ideas about uh, how to run mega studies in a way that it generates the most knowledge and i'm excited about that jan rob thank you very much thank thanks you. justin that's it for this episode i hope you'll send us your feedback you can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at Tech Policy Press. Thanks to my guests, thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy.
glossy press.